for some extra songs as we consider the Lord and uh, his life given for us. But if you wouldn't mind, flip over to Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. I uh, kind of mentioned a couple weeks ago, we finished, well, we finished 1 Corinthians, and uh, I am actually very excited about 2 Corinthians. Uh, it's a, a great letter from Paul uh, to the church there, but uh, for our um, Bible communications class, we've been uh, searching the, the Gospels for different times where Jesus addresses uh, what we consider like bad thinking. Uh, or, or another way to put it is where somebody asks a question about with an earthly priority and he kind of flips it on its head and says, well, this is actually the, the heavenly priority. So reading through the Gospels has just been a, a tremendous blessing to me. You know, it's, it's um, <laughs> kind of, to me, it's kind of humorous because I felt like I should know that. But uh, reading them again, just kind of in, you know, straight through, I've been like, wow, these are really good. Like Jesus had some good stuff to say. So <laughs> I just want to take a moment and uh, kind of go back and uh, look at some of these ideas. Now, I did bring this up last week and kind of gave a brief summary of it, but I wanted to kind of focus on it this week. It's, it's uh, kind of one of those um, passages that it's, for, for me has personal significance, and it's been, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, a real tool in my life to address difficulty and just my own bad thinking sometimes. So uh, if you don't mind, let's uh, look into Matthew chapter 14, and, and we're going to uh, look at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then the boat trip. So just by introduction, it, it, just for brevity, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, <laughs> all right? And after that, after the, the feeding of those 5,000, and we know a little bit about it, right, because it's in John, it's in Mark. Uh, we know a little bit about it. That the, he feeds those 5,000 people right after telling the disciples, I'm going to take you to a, to a, a solitary place where you can relax, so we're going to go to this place. You guys are going to get to relax. Uh, and then after that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll spend some time and rest because they had just gone on a missionary trip, the two-by-two two witnessing. He says, we're going to rest. So they jump in the boat. They go to go rest. They get out on the other side, and there's all these people waiting for them, 5,000 men. So, and, and, and even the Gospels say uh, that it was only the men, and, and they weren't counting the women and children at that point. So you, really the feeding of the 5,000 is probably more along the feeding of the, the 10, 12, 13, 14,000. Um, which is a lot of people in one place, right? Uh, and so they go through that whole thing. They, they arrive there kind of, or they leave on the boat in the morning. They arrive there in late morning. They, he teaches all day, and then in the afternoon, they say, Jesus, please send these people away. We're, we're combining the information from three Gospels here. Uh, they say, please send these people away so they can get something to eat. There's no food around here. Jesus says, no, you feed them. And that's when Andrew, this little boy, he sees this little boy with a, with a lunch, and uh, Andrew goes to the little boy and says, hey, you know, can we show that to Jesus? And, and they show it to Jesus, the, to the uh, five loaves and the two fish. And Jesus gives thanks and puts it in baskets. They hand it all out. And then, and then late in the, in the evening, it tells us, and we'll talk a little bit about time. In the evening, he, he then commands them to go get into a boat. So just I think the, the, the context is important because this is a long day, right? They've been on a mission, literally on a mission trip. They've gotten back from the mission trip. They were promised rest. They didn't get rest. They requested that the people be sent away. Jesus said, no, not only am I not going to send them away, you're going to be part of this miracle I'm going to do, and now you're going to work for another four or five hours or however long it takes 12 dudes to pass food out to thousands of people. Uh, and then after that, go get in a boat. So that's where we pick up where Jesus then says, okay, he dismisses the crowd, and he tells them, go get in the boat. Verse 22. It says there immediately, now we know from John that this was the evening. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. 
After he dismissed them, then he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, uh, he was there alone, and the boat was already considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, and they said, and, uh, they said and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said, and then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus, and when he saw the wind, he was afraid, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of the place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country, and people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let, them, uh, to let the sick touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. And really what I just want to talk about today and just how this is ministered to me, there's a lot of different angles. It's just dealing with doubt. How, what, what causes doubt? Dealing with doubt. Uh, and Because I, I think that, that can be a complicated thing. I think sometimes when we have doubt in our life, when we look at something and do not believe it'll work out uh, the way God wants it to, or we don't think God's going to come through for us, or an event occurs in my life that we, we classify as not good, and so therefore we have certain an emotional response to that, uh, an intellectual response to that, and that can generate a doubt. God won't actually come through for me, right? And that's what we see with Peter. He's out. He's walking on the water. He begins to sink. He calls out. Jesus saves him. And, and then the question that, that follows that, that catching of the hand and that pulling back up is, why did you doubt me? And, and so for me personally, this has been a really huge, again, I don't have a better term, tool, guide in my own life. When I'm dealing with doubt, when I'm thinking about doubt, when I'm doubting uh, the goodness of God, when I'm doubting the faithfulness of God, when I'm doubting he'll come through for me, or I'm doubting I'll like what he'll do to come through for me, right? Uh, I, won't, I don't want him to do what he might be doing in my life. I can, th this is a great question. Why am I doubting, right? Because the core, the doubt, doubt is just a symptom of something deeper, right? If I go to my car and I doubt it's going to start, it's because I believe there's a problem with the car, right? I don't just have arbitrary doubt about it not working out. There could be something from my own personal experience with that particular car. It could be just that in general, I had a bad experience years ago with a car, and so therefore now I look at all cars with suspicion, right? There's a lot of different ways that we can have doubt, but, but the manifestation of doubt in our life is a core difficulty that we're having with something that we should be able to depend on. Does that make sense? And we see that really clearly in Peter. So I just want to go through this passage and, and look at some different things, uh, some different um, portions of the passage that play into what's happening here. First and foremost, in verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountain to pray by himself. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. So he, he tells them, you guys go get in the boat. It's evening time. We know that from John. It's evening time. He says, go get in the boat. So now, if you think clockwise, so they got back from, a, uh, they, get, they get back in like the evening, the afternoon, the previous day from a mission trip. And, and, and actually, the commentary on that mission trip is they were so busy, they didn't have time to eat. So then the next morning, they get with Jesus, and Jesus tells them, okay, now we're going to go over to their side. They still haven't eaten yet. The Gospels tell us that. 
So they, they, they've now not eaten for 15, 20 hours, right? So then they, they row across, they pop out. Jesus tells them to feed the, the people. Now they've gone all day, and they finally, we assume, eat when they feed these other thousands of people, okay? So that's, that can generate certain feelings in a person, right? The disappointment of not getting the solitude you thought you were going to get, the disappointment of not being able to eat when you wanted to eat. These are all things that play into our disappointment, our emotional state, all those different things, and, and, and really can give way for us to justify having a sinful or fleshly response to something. So he tells them to get in the boat. It's evening. Later that night, he's there alone, and the boat is already a considerable distance from the land. Now, again, in John, John tells us in John 6, they're three or four miles from the land. So they've rode, they've rode quite a ways. Now, it's an English translation of, of you know, a different... They didn't use miles, <laughs> right? But it, so it's an English translation. So they're about three or four miles away from the land at this point. But there's some other things to consider about their boat trip. They're, it's buffeted, their boat, verse 24, is buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. The word buffeted there is the same word, it's the Greek word to torture. So it's not that they're kind of, they have like a, a you know, you see, out, look out, you see the white caps, like there's a little bit of chop from the wind, and there's some white caps. No, the idea is their boat is just being destroyed, it's being tortured by the weather. Now, we know, and many have said before, rightly so, that a lot of these guys are seasoned fishermen. Right? They've been out. They know the Lake of Gennesaret. They've been out there before. They've experienced these things. Uh, but nobody likes, there's not too many people that like and enjoy a really rough boat ride. Right? I lived on a boat for five years in San Diego. We had a 42-foot sloop. My dad was a Navy man, and we got out. He wanted to keep living on a boat. So we lived on a boat. And we got into some pretty crazy stuff. My dad, I think, was a little more into it than my mom was. And, uh, you know, but we got into some pretty crazy waters. I, in fact, I remember as a kid, you know, I don't know if you, I never knew this, so I lived on a boat as a kid. But the, the oven and the, the stovetop, the propane stovetop, is on hinges. So you pull the, the pins out, and the stovetop will do this. Because I remember one time being uh, anchored off Ensenada, which you're like, oh, that must have been great. Not really. Because, and they have these, they have these huge, like, uh, uh, poles that, that come off the mast, and you lower these, like, giant flat, uh, they're plexiglass with weights on them. And what it did was it was supposed to stop the boat from rocking. They don't work that great. They don't work that great. And I remember my mom trying to make stew, and it's just like, you know, the things like, because it doesn't rotate all directions. It only goes two, right? And, it's just, and we're all in the boat just like, are you kidding me, Dad? Like, this is ridiculous, right? But we all kept our mouth shut because we were younger. Uh, and, and, and I remember, like, sailing back from Ensenada and just the chop, and you come up, and the, the bow comes up, and then boom, and up, and then boom. And it just sounds like it's going to absolutely break apart. And I remember just being this kid, in a life jacket, in the cockpit, like holding on for dear life, thinking we're all going to die today, right? It's just not fun. And we had many different adventures. My, we had a jibe, an accidental jibe that my uncle did one time, and the, and the boom caught, and it slammed the boat. It's a 42-foot boat with an 11-foot beam. It's huge. It slammed the boat to the tow rail in the water. We went like vertical or horizontal almost, and we all got chucked to one side. Boat emergencies, I remember the chain came off one time when my, we were sailing, and so we were headed right towards land. The, blowing, the, land was, the, water, excuse me, the wind was blowing us back to the land, chop everywhere, and all of a sudden we can't steer anymore because the chain breaks the, to the rudder. None of those times I thought to myself, this is really great. 
You know, none of those times I thought it was a sheer panic. I remember my mom crying. I remember my sister crying. I remember just going like, what in the world is happening? Boat, scary boat stuff is, I think, some of the scary stuff that there is, right? Because you're going in the water. <laughs> if something, you'll pull over in a boat, right? You know, say, oh, yeah, that was kind of a rough ride. We'll pull over. Well, you know, even if you're going to call, you know, for help, they have to come in a boat. And they're in the rough water, too. So all that to say is that, I want to kind of give some context. I mean, think about what's happening here. You've now, you, you, you've had one meal in like 36 hours. It says that, that they're rowing, that Jesus comes to, comes to them in the, in the fourth watch. The fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m. And in, in Matthew, he puts it this way, just before dawn. So what is it, 4 or 5 in the morning? Well, think about our timeline again. Like these guys have now been up for a very long time. They've had one meal. Jesus has told them first to get in, first to, to, to go to this place, which they did. It was the will of God to, to cross the lake. They did that. Then he gave them the command to get, to get into the boat, and they did that. And every single thing that they've been a part of has been very hard up to this point, right? Very difficult. It's, been, it's, been, it's cost them, if you will. In fact, we know that they didn't deal with it well because in the end, in, the, in, in Mark chapter 6, Mark's commentary of when Jesus gets in the boat and the winds calm down, they worship him. It's the same commentary, but it says that they gained no insight from the miracle of the loaves. And we talked about this last week. So they were able to pass out food out of baskets to however many, above, most likely above 10,000 people for however many hours but their hearts were hardened. They were so upset about what they were involved in, it says they didn't gain insight. Can you imagine handing food out of a basket for hours? The food that you saw, some little kid's like, yeah, here's my, my, my sack lunch. And you see Jesus, give thanks for it. And then you see Jesus put it in 12 separate baskets. That would be miraculous enough, right? These aren't like giant, like 200-pound sturgeon or something like that. These are just little fish from Gennesaret. And, he, and, and he, to take those fish and, and just into 12 baskets, you'd be like, whoa, did you see that? But then to just hand out food over and over and over and over and over again from the same basket and it never ran out. But then on the other side, to gain, to have no knowledge, to not see any more of Jesus, to not understand any more about his power, to not be drawn to what he can do, to miss the miracle because you had a bad attitude. That's literally what happens here, right? And so they're just like us. This is not those darn disciples or something like that. They're like us. We, we get caught up with stuff. We don't, it doesn't work out the way, the way we think it should. We think we're, we deserve one thing or we're promised another or whatever it might be, and it doesn't work out, and we can go to these places. So that's what's happening here. And now they've rowed against buffeted waves. They're rowing throughout the night, and the, the wind is against them. You ever walked against the wind? That's not very fun. Have you ever ridden a bike against the wind? That's not very fun. Imagine rowing against the wind. And you have a small, you know, it's not, not terribly small, you know, but you have a smallish boat. You, the, the sail's probably not up, but you still have the, uh, the mast and these things. You still have the, the pieces that are on it. And now you're rowing against wind and waves. That's where they're at. So verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. So first we have these commands that Jesus gave them. We're going to go to the other side, feed them, get in the boat, all these things. So they're right in the center of the will of God. This is important. These guys are right where God told them to be. 
right? And it's not easy, and it's not fun, and they're not enjoying it. But they're still right in the middle of what God is, where he's called them, right? Then after that, now we kind of we dip into some confusion. And a lot of times when we're going through hard times or we're perceiving things as if they shouldn't be or we don't understand why they're happening or whatever it might be, we can, there can, confusion can, can happen. And so in this case, the confusion is Jesus comes walking on the water, which would be very confusing, wouldn't it? You've not seen that before. It's not a common occurrence in your life. You do believe that he's Messiah. But remember, they're still, these, at this stage in the game, at this time period, they don't understand or believe that Jesus will die or rise from the dead. They don't believe that up until it happens. Over and over again, the disciples, he says, I'm going to die and raise these. And they all go, ah, not you, Lord. That's not how it's going to go down. So they don't have perfect knowledge. They don't understand everything he's doing. And, and here they are in the middle of his will, going through hard times and confusion. He shows up and he's walking on the water. And so they say it's a ghost. They're, conf- they're concerned that it's some sort of demonic or otherworldly apparition that's going to cause them harm, right? So it's something that, that they don't understand. That can we, we can probably all agree that whether you watch Ghost Hunters or, you know, you're super into, you know, um, uh, demonic things or whatever it might be, the spiritual world, the reality is we don't really know about a lot of this stuff. And we all have opinions, we all have thoughts, and, and I'm, not, I'm not here to make commentary on ghosts or what they do and don't exist. I'm just saying that they have, from their back room where they're at, they look at it and they say, they look at Jesus and his appearance to them, they don't recognize his appearance, they don't recognize how he comes to them, and they say, this is here to cause us harm. This is some sort of supernatural apparition that is here and it's going to cause us harm, right? That's their response to it. And a lot of times when we're going through things and we're having difficulties, when Christ is working or moving or even when he himself appears, we misjudge it. And we say, he would never do that. Or I don't understand this. Or I don't think this is right. Or, you know, the last time I experienced this, it was a ghost. or Whatever it might be. We have all these ideas. And so they, they, they put those ideas on Jesus just like we do. It will, it will result in this way. Or, or he shouldn't do that. Whatever it might be. And so they, they cry out and they say, it's a ghost. Like this is here for our harm. Even though it's Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus in the middle of their trial. In the middle of where God commanded them to be. And they obeyed to get there. And they don't recognize what's going on. Remember, they're probably, and again, we have to be careful because this is an inference, they're probably still in the midst of that hard-heartedness. Why would it change? And in the end, the worship comes when they realize it's Jesus. So at this point, they're still dudes who've been up for 36 plus hours. They've been rowing the whole time. They've had one meal that we know of. And now they see this this misinterpreted uh, uh, event and they, they think it's not Jesus, but someone that's there to harm them. So they cry out, it's a ghost, and they're afraid. They have fear. And, and, and I think it's something to consider, why do we have fear? Why do, what is fear in us? Typically, fear is when we demonstrate concern over something that may happen, right? Right? So if I fear something, if I fear an apparition or a ghost, what I'm, my concern is, because if, if it really was just a ghost and they're just going to stroll by us, then that wouldn't really hurt us. But there's something inside of them that says, no, this will hurt me. This will cost me. This will do bad to me, right? That's, that's what's occurring right here. And so they, they cry out from that fear. For us, what, what, when we're in the middle of what God is doing, why do we fear? 
I think we fear, I just wrote down some things. Sometimes we have very valid fear because we fear emotional pain. We fear death because we fear the emotional pain. Sometimes we fear isolation. This could cost me. I could be isolated. I could end up being by myself. I'll be lonely. Rejection. We can fear rejection. It's a valid fear, right? We all have been created to be accepted. Our entire high school careers are revolve around trying to be accepted by our peers while maintaining some sort of outward appearance that we don't care about our peers. Isn't that weird? You know, and, and, and we still, as adults, if we don't mature, we still do that, right? And we take on identities and, and all these different things so that we can be accepted. So sometimes we have a fear of rejection. If, if, if God is doing something in my life and I were to follow it, then I'll be rejected. I know when I got saved, I was 16 years old, and by the time I was 18, uh, and part of it was my fault, um, absolutely, of just being a little bit overzealous, I had none of my old friends anymore from high school after I got saved. It took about two years. And none of them. They didn't want anything to do with me. And again, part of it was just because I just became a little bit of a jerk Christian. So it's, it's on me. But that in following Jesus, there were still times where I'd be afraid and say, Lord, if I do that, then, then this will cost me. If I take a stand on certain, certain important topics in the Bible, it'll cost me. I could end up rejected and not accepted. When really we're ultimately created to be accepted and received by God, the one who does not reject, right? The one who always receives back those that are his. We can have fear of not getting what we need. That's a valid fear to an extent. I don't, I'm not going to get what I need. If I, if I trust God, if I allow this, I won't get what I need. Here I am in the middle of, will of God, in the, the will of God. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I don't understand why this is happening. And I have a fear. I fear that God's not going to give me what I need. Right? And we'll address that. Uh, not being valued. Then we have invalid emotional pain. Pain that's invalid. When my pride gets hurt. That's invalid. It's okay when our pride gets hurt. It's okay when God says we're not as great as we think we are. It's okay, to, it's okay to be humbled and to realize like, wow, I, you know what I am? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Operating or separating myself from God and his will because I'm afraid of being exposed or I'm afraid my pride will be injured is an invalid fear. It's a fear that is, if we allow God to work in our hearts, it will only turn out for good. It's important that I'll lose identity. Who will I be if I don't have this thing in my life? We can fear, an invalid fear is not getting what I want. Since that's not promised to me. I can want a lot of things, but I don't, I'm not promised to get what I want. I'm promised to get what I need. And we'll, we'll talk more about promises later because they're really important when we combat fear. And promises being verses and ideas that God has shared with us that are guarantees in our life. So he has guaranteed you that you will always have what you need. But he has never guaranteed that we'll always have what we want. And there's, there's a caveat to that of how that works out well for us. Other doubts that we can have, other fears. Fears of relationships, losing a relationship. Fear of not being what we should be in a relationship. We can fear money. We, lots of other things we can fear. So what happens is, in the middle of the will of God, Jesus shows up as a, as a uh, well, he shows up as himself. They mistake him for, as a ghost. They cry out, and then he responds to them, and he says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. So they have this fear, and it's interesting, he says, take courage. So this is translated different ways in different uh, translations. I love the King James personally, be of good cheer, take courage, take heart. 
They're all the same Greek word, but they all mean the same thing. So the Nelson Bible Dictionary defines courage as this. The strength of purpose that enables one to withstand fear or difficulty. So courage is not an absence of fear. It's not that I never have doubt, although that may be something as we grow in the Lord, as we learn to trust him and learn his fidelity, that we have less and less doubt and less and less fear. But it's not an absence of fear. It's not a a cowling to fear. It's not bowing down to fear. Courage is having fear or observing fear in our lives and yet moving forward because we have a trust in something greater, God's purpose, God's promise, who he is. So he tells them, in this case, I'm not a ghost. It's me. It's Jesus. So Peter, and you know, I would, we don't know, and I, I don't know about you, I've thought about it a lot, and I've heard different teachings on it, I've read different things. At the end of the day, we don't know what Peter is thinking here. We have no idea. We don't know uh, if it's, uh, some people proposed, oh, he was just trying to, you know, show off for the disciples. You're like, that seems a little unfair. I mean, we have no idea what's going on in his heart. But the reality is something motivates Peter, and I, I admire it personally. He says, if it's you, if it's really you. So this is noteworthy, right? He, he doesn't know yet. Because he says, if it's you, call me out onto the water. I want to walk with you. I want to experience what you're doing. Now, Remind the wind and the waves are still happening here, right? And I've always wondered about that. Is Jesus just on the waves, like going up and down on top of them? Are they kind of washing over his knees? How is this working physically? I don't know. How are they in line with the boat? Is there like, you know, is he going down in the wave and back up? How does it work? I don't know. But Peter gets off the boat. Jesus says, come, come to me. So he gets off the boat and he starts walking on the water. So this is like the triple layer of God's will for Peter, right? He said, we're going to go on vacation. They didn't get to do it, but they walked in his will there. He commanded them to get in the boat. They got in the boat. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. He said, go to the other side. And they maintained that for like eight or nine hours. That's commitment, right? I would have been like, you know what, guys? Let's just get blown back to shore. We'll put a tent up. We'll meet Jesus there tomorrow. It's going to be all good. Like, does it, does it really matter if we get there tonight? Not these guys. They're going for it. They're rowing through it. They've been there for hours now. And so he's in the will of God. The third layer, he says, if that's really you, Jesus, then, then I want to walk with you through that. I want to go with you through that. And Jesus says, yes, come and get on the water. And he gets out and he's walking on the water. He's experiencing it. He's, he's enjoying all the benefits of God's command and God's call and everything that he has for him in that moment. It doesn't get any better than that, right? Just, just absolutely surrendered to what God would have in his life willing to do the impossible, trusting that Jesus is able to, to, to make him or able or, or uh, facilitate that, right? That's where he's going. But something happens. And he, he says there, when Peter, then Peter got down out of the boat, there in verse 29, and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. So we don't know how far Jesus was. He was far enough away they thought he was a ghost but he's evidently close enough that Jesus begins to walk with him. And I don't want to discount miracle. I mean, Jesus can teleport wherever he wants or however that's going to work. But it just didn't see. He's walking on the ocean. And Mark tells us he would have passed them by. So he's literally just walk, It doesn't seem any teleporting happened. It's just like Jesus just like strolling. Maybe the waves kind of made so he had a flat path, whatever. He's just kind of strolling. He was going to leave them right where they're at. But they see him first. So like, ah, right. So this. So now Peter 
is walking towards him, and he gets a distance from the boat. This might not matter to you. I don't know. For some reason, I just really want to know how far it was. Was it two steps? Was it 10 feet? Was it 50 yards? How far does he walk to see him? I imagine pretty close, right? Because there's no skylights. There's no city lights. There's, they have like maybe a, a lantern or something on the boat. You know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of light. But he starts, he, he starts off. But what happens? Verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? So he sees the wind and the rain. And I think that this is one of the reasons why we deal with fear in our life. This is one of a huge reason. Because we see what should be instead of what could be. And what I mean is that, that he should be sinking, right? By all accounts, by physics, by everything that we know how the world works, everything that he knows about how the world works, I mean, I don't know. I lived on a boat for five years. I fell off a dock. I fell off some stairs once. I fell off the back of the boat once. I went in the water so many times. I'm guessing that those guys went in the water once or twice being on a boat for that long. Maybe not. That's conjecture. But he knows what happens when something goes in the water that's not a fish, right? It sinks. So he knows how this works. So all of a sudden, in the middle of the will of God, three times over again, if you will, he's, he notices what's always been true in his life. And he says, there's no way that this could work now. He begins to fear. Maybe he's in the, the valley of one of those waves and he sees it coming like, oh, that's going to go over the top of me. That one will sink me. Sure, I'm walking right now, but there's no way that wave won't sink me. I've seen what that kind of wave could do to a person. Whatever, however it went on in his mind, he, he begins to observe what should happen or what could happen or what might normally happen. And all of a sudden he he, he, he experiences something that we all experience. He says, God can't get me through this. This will not work out for me. Yes, I'm with Jesus. Yes, he told me to be here. Yes, he told me he could do this. Yes, he's commanded me. Yes, I've obeyed him. And I've been faithful, except for some issues in my heart, evidently. But he says, Jesus can't save me from this. And so because of that, he begins to sink. You know, one of the things that's, that, that's so tremendous about this, he cries out, Lord, save me. That's faith, right? Isn't that faith? He doesn't try to swim back to the boat. He doesn't say, throw me a lifeline, John, Bartholomew, where are you guys? He says, Lord, save me. He turns back to Jesus in the midst of his doubt. And, and there's a weird duality in human beings that were like that, right? I believe, help my unbelief, says the man of the demon-possessed son, over and over again, you see that demonstrated in our own lives and in biblical lives. This duality inside of us that says, I do believe, but there's something inside of me that just, it won't give. It doesn't want to change. There's this doubt. There's this reservation. I'm just convinced that this is how life has always worked out. This is how physics works. This is how money works. This is how all these things work. This is how the brain works. Relationships work. And now I just don't see how I can prevail and continue and be, and be preserved. I don't see it. But then that, that awesome part of us, that, that mustard seed mini faith, turns around and says, Lord, you save me. Please save me. A presumption upon his goodness upon his fidelity, his kindness. And the Lord saves him. He doesn't say, oh, you should have believed more. I'll let you go under for a little bit. You know, get some water in your lungs. Aspirate a little bit. 
Then I'll kind of, oh, oh, help you up a little bit. He didn't say, well, you know what? If you get more faith, you'll just float again. If you had more faith to begin with, you would have never drowned. What's your problem? He doesn't rebuke him. He, doesn't, he, just, he just saves him. He just reaches out and he picks him up. And he, and he just lifts him back on the water. And I like it because in all the Gospels, it shares a similar idea. It says, when they got back in the boat. And I want to be careful because I don't want to give too much um, my own imagination in all this. So I do want to be careful about that. But it says, verse 32, and when they climbed, plural, climbed is plural. They both climbed into the boat. Jesus doesn't like firemen's carry him, chuck him back into the boat. The idea is that he picked him up and he continued, he walked back. Whatever distance he had gone, he walked back to the boat, holding Jesus' hand. Then he gets back in the boat. But Jesus has something to say about it. Praise God for tough words, huh? Jesus has something to say about it, and he says, you of little faith, you have small faith. Why did you doubt? And this is the tool, this is the key. Why did you doubt, Peter? You doubted because this is how it's always worked in your life. You doubted because you saw these things that you, th- you thought I wouldn't be able to get you through. You doubted because you thought that I didn't have the power to help. That's the bottom line. So we have to ask ourselves, every time difficulty happens to us, we have to ask ourselves, why do I doubt? Why do I fear? And I think when we address fear, when we deal with fear by by application, when we deal with fear, we never deal with fear by pretending that the situations aren't real. That's not dealing with fear. We never deal with fear by saying, I'll never get cancer. I'll never have an accident. I'll never experience pain. Oh, I'll never have bad to me. That is not dealing with fear. Oh, I'll just make sure that I do X, Y, and Z so these things never... I'll have a huge retirement. I'll have this. I'll make sure that I only do this, whatever it might be. Then bad won't happen to me. That is not dealing with fear at all. That's avoiding fear. It's pretending as if we have a force field around us. It's denying what true power, the power of God in our life is. Dealing with fear is we address it and we speak to it with the promises of God. We say, you know what? I could become a quadriplegic and God could do something great out of it. You know what? I could lose my most valued relationship and God could still work in my life. He could heal me. You know what? I could, I could endure this. I could endure the death of a child. I can endure a cancer diagnosis. I can endure the absolute worst things that we can imagine. We deal with fear by not saying, that won't happen to me. God will spare me from that. That's a falsehood. That's a, that's a fairy tale. And it's weak. What we say is, God will deliver me in that. Because that's what his promises are. His promises are, we will suffer. His promises are, we, have, we live in a broken world where terrible things happen because we break it, other people break it, and it's just corrupted because of sin. And yet we look at it and we say, I don't fear it. I don't, feel, I don't fear cancer. I don't fear, uh, you know, horrible disease, Lou Gehrig's disease. I don't want it, but I don't fear it. And I'm not going to live my life trying to get away from it. Because I, I, we have a purpose, and our purpose is to walk with Christ and to go through those things and to give him glory. And so when we, when we look at the things that we fear the most and we just say, that could absolutely happen to me tomorrow. There are no guarantees at all in this life. None. Except Christ. Christ is the only remedy to fear because it gives us a hope and a purpose that goes beyond this world. 
Every other thing in this world is absolutely collapsible. Everything. The church could burn down tomorrow. We would still be people, right? But there would be people that go to other churches, and then we would, there would probably be a big dispersion, and this church could be, become defunct. That's okay if that happens, because God could still work. Or a new building could happen. A new, I mean, it just doesn't matter. God is always going to work. And in the midst of our fear, it's a simple application. Jesus, save me. I'm sorry I doubt it. That's how we address fear in our life. We never pretend like it won't happen. That's not healthy. I'm not saying we should revel in bad things happening or we should welcome them or something like that. But we don't pretend they won't. Instead, what we say is God will, God will meet me. God will do something great. As soon as we become snarky with Jesus or we begin to express doubt with him, I'm not, saying, I'm not talking about the power of positive confession and like trying to paint some picture where you just say it to be true and will. No, that's, that's not true either. What I'm saying is when we think about things, we can become snarky and sarcastic and be like, well, whatever, I don't, you know, God may be like, no, we don't, we don't want to make those confessions. Again, I'm not talking about positive confession. I'm talking about speaking truth. God will work in that situation. He will work all things together for good. So when he comes and he says, why did you doubt? We have to really ask ourselves that. Why did I doubt? Just because there was wind and rains, just because all of physics and all the natural laws of this world told me that Jesus couldn't, why did I doubt? Because I know he can. He's the God of the miraculous. And I don't know about you, but as a personal shameful confession, I forget that all the time. And I just think to myself, well, okay, how would this work out? How would that work out? Lord, could you, I pray about things and I ask God to do things, but then in my mind, I'm still like, okay, logically, how are we going to do this? How would that work? You know, these type of things. But instead to be like, you know, God, what do you want to do here? Because we're open for whatever. And God, how can you use this pain of mine? How can you use what's happened in my life? How can I walk through these things with you? <clears throat> it says, verse 12, he says, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. So he gets in the boat, all of a sudden, the wind dies down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. They didn't worship him with the miracle of the loaves. That's what Mark makes the, different, Mark makes the differentiation right here. They didn't worship him for the miracle of the loaves. They didn't gain any insight from the miracle of the loaves. But when they saw the wind and the rain, where God met them, where they were at in their hard-heartedness, what a glorious, merciful Savior. They are ticked off, Right? Their plans were broken. Their hearts are hardened. And God doesn't, you know, Jesus didn't jump in the boat and say, well, Peter's out there. Go get him. You losers better start believing me. Get your stuff together. What's your problem? You should, be, you should know who I am by now. I've been with you for like a year and a half. We've been all over the place. I've been healing people. And now you're worried about some wind and some rain. No, they met him right where they were at in their hard-heartedness, in the middle of their boat, after 36 hours of feeding and rowing and all sorts of stuff. And he, he revealed himself to them in a way that they could understand. And they worshiped him. And then they get to Gennesaret and they jump out on the other side. You know what the great thing is? They jump right back into crummy situations. It doesn't stop there. It's not like, in, and, and they rode off into the sunset and everything was wonderful. No, in like a couple days from now, Peter, Jesus is going to turn to, pay, uh, to the disciples, Peter specifically, because he asked the question, and he's going to say, are you really so dull of understanding? Do you really not understand the parables of the kingdom? That would be hard to hear from Jesus. Are you really hard, so hard-hearted? Are you really in a place in your life where you don't, after years, you don't understand what I'm telling you? 
They're going to go on, and the disciples, not long after this, there's the Seraphonician woman, a woman of, of a place that was judged by God from Troas. God poured out his judgment on that place, and she's a Seraphonician woman, and the, 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 uh, she comes around Jesus to get healing for her daughter. And Jesus, uh, excuse me, the, the uh, disciples are like, get this lady away from us. This disgusting lady from a place that was judged. They, they don't say that, but that's where they're coming from. Get this lady away from us. Tell her to go away. And Jesus says, no, and he heals. He, well, he has a dialogue with her, but he heals the daughter from afar. So they're going to have trials and misunderstandings and lack of faith and all sorts of things. They're going to have high highs and low lows. Peter's still going to say, I've never known the guy three times. Right? Mark is still going to run away in the garden, wiggling out of his robe and <laughs> running away. That must have been embarrassing, running around in your little, like, man skivvies. What happened to you? I was boldly standing for Jesus while I slithered out of my robe and ran away. Right? I mean, they're all still going to go through those things. But he's not done with them. See, we have, a, we, have a, we have an incredible, gracious God. So what do we come away with today? We come away with that God is gracious. And he is kind. And Jesus is searching for people that will trust him. Trust him in the most physically bizarre and difficult situations, in emotionally bizarre and difficult situations. People that will trust him and invite him. See, many of us, myself included, we, in a sense, long for the comfort of God. We say, I want your comfort, I want your comfort. But when, when difficulties come, where do we do? We turn on the TV. I'm not, I'm not against a good you know, rom-com when things are low. I'm, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, we have to give God opportunity to comfort us. We can't turn to ice cream and Netflix and then go, God, why aren't you comforting me? When we don't turn to his word, when we don't turn to, to, to worship music, when we don't turn to you know, one another for prayer, when we turn away from everything that God has prescribed and we turn to everything that we know has a temporal comfort and then we go, God doesn't comfort me, that's garbage. You're not garbage, but that's garbage. Why would we, we have to be careful, let me put it that way, we have to be careful when we say we're waiting for God's deliverance and for God's comfort, when we're not doing anything, and I don't mean doing to earn it, I mean doing it to position ourselves to receive it, to receive the supernatural comfort that he has for us. And that's what he's promised. So for us, we're following Jesus, and he's got great things for us. And we're going to have highs and we're going to have lows, unfortunately. But he's not giving up on us. And he still has great things for us. And it's for us to make ourselves available for those things. Say, here I am. If it's really you, call me out on the ocean, please. And to see what he does. Because he promised that he will work. So we have the communion. We'll pray and we'll have some worship together. And I just encourage you, come, feel free to come get the communion as you like and, and partake uh, when, when you feel ready. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Lord, thank you that we can take comfort in your disciples and how you walked with them and talked with them, helped them. Thank you for these examples that we have um, that were written for us. We praise you, Lord. We praise you for your patience. We praise you for your kindness. We praise you that when we've lacked faith, infinite amount of times it seems like, at least for me, Lord, you've, you've abided faithful. And Lord, we, we have nothing... Well, unfortunately, I don't know. Sometimes my heart definitely has doubt and other things to say. But I want to be in a place where I have nothing but, but glory and honor for you. Lord, you've been so kind, and we appreciate it. 
We pray that you would pour out your spirit in this place as we worship you, as we partake, as we remember you, uh, the body given and the covenant in your blood, and that it would be a sweet remembrance. Thank you for this cup and for this bread and the opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.